Can a Democrat win in Texas in a statewide election? Let's find out. Uh, we're gonna talk to Rochelle Garza. She's running as Democratic nominee for Texas Attorney General against Ken Paxton. It's a giant race. Rochelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. And yes, we can absolutely win in Texas. All right, well, let's talk about how. Uh, so you're actually doing the best in polling of any of the Democratic candidates running for statewide office. So that's uh, incredible, it's encouraging. I'm a progressive, so I'm down with it. Uh, so let's figure out uh, the issues there and how and why that's happening. So number one, what do you think? Why are you doing better than the other Democrats in, in Texas? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons, but first and foremost, there are a lot of Texans that see themselves in me and in this campaign. I am a fifth generation Tejana from South Texas, from the border region, from the Rio Grande Valley. I'm a mother to a seven month old. I'm a civil rights attorney, a working person. I know what it's like to live paycheck to paycheck and to have student debt, a lot of student debt. and. People see themselves in my campaign because of those things. And they know that I am here to do the job of the Attorney General, to be the people's lawyer, to fight for consumers, to fight for voting rights, for all of our civil rights, for reproductive rights. Um, and that's what's at stake right now in this election because we've got an Attorney General who is more concerned with staying out of prison than he is about serving the interests of Texans. He's been under a criminal indictment for seven years without trial. And he's under investigation by the FBI for, for bribery. And not to mention, he tried to overturn the 2020 election. So Texans do not want to continue with someone like that in office. And they are looking at, at me and this campaign and are ready for a change in November. So I've always wondered about that. Um, I mean, look, let's just note for the record that we live now in a country where being a criminal is considered not a big deal. Oh, oh, he's indicted. Uh, he's the FBI thinks he's a crook. The Republicans are going to vote for him anyway. <laughs> like they, they, like in the old days, that would have ended your career in a second. Now, uh, their politicians being crooks is considered super normal for them. But anyways, uh, why seven years? Why, why haven't they done anything about it? That, that's what's driving me crazy. Yeah, I mean, he was, Ken Paxton was indicted for securities fraud back in 2015 for specifically tricking his own clients into bad investments that benefited him. And he hasn't answered for that because of his position, because he is the Attorney General of Texas, he is the chief legal officer of this state. And that, that yields him a lot of power. Uh, so he's been able to avoid his trial and he has abused this office and, and the power of this office. Um, you know, There's been a lot of reporting coming out about how in disarray the office is. Uh, you're having um, individuals unfortunately being shown child pornography in the office. You're having them lose victims of human trafficking and letting go of, of a trafficking ring. Uh, because not only is he someone who doesn't believe the law applies to him, but he is just a failure at, at his job. No, it's amazing. Uh, attorney General job is supposed to be to enforce the law. And now we literally have Republicans running that are wanted criminals that are trying to become Attorney General so they can avoid the law. That's amazing, that's amazing. And by the way, they had a primary. They could have picked another Republican. The Republicans were like, no, no, we like the criminal. 
The one that was robbing everybody to his own clients, that's the guy we want. I hope to God there's enough independence in, in, in Texas to make a, ch a change on this. I mean, on that alone, this race should be over. It's unbelievable. Okay, so yes. you on the other hand have an entire legal principle named after you. I mean, your accomplishments are amazing. We'll get back to that in a second. But another question that I had is, so if if let's say Greg Abbott wins the governorship, right? And let's say the Republicans keep the lieutenant governor, etc. But you're the attorney general, those are two different parties. And and so Abbott says, no, I want to continue the anti-LGBTQ you know, laws. I want to continue the anti-choice laws and the busing, etc. What can you do as attorney general? There's a whole lot I can do. I've described this position as the queen on the chessboard. It, it, it wields so much power because it is an independent constitutional position. So as attorney general, I, I don't have to answer to Governor Abbott. I don't have to answer to this extreme legislature. I am meant to be a check on on these bad actions that we are seeing. Uh, right now, we are hearing that the state legislature is considering banning travel out of the state for people who need access to an abortion. That's unconstitutional. It, it is violating our constitutional right to travel. No one is a prisoner in their own state. And I could issue a legal opinion saying, this is not constitutional and it would have the effect of binding the agencies of the state of Texas. It wouldn't have the effect of law, but it would have an important check to that power and making sure that you know, we, we follow the constitution and that we do not uh, enforce uh, an unconstitutional law like banning the right to travel. So um, there's so much more to talk about in Texas. and. and uh, but I want to make sure people have your website. So we'll have the links down below if you're watching on YouTube and Facebook. But what's the website, Rochelle? It's Rochelle Garza for Texas.com. Okay, Rochelle That's how you can help. Um, and you can, yeah, you can go to my website and um, you know sign up. We're we're in the final stretch, but every dollar counts. Um, every tweet share accounts. Uh, we need to make sure that we communicate with people across the state of Texas and also stress how important this race is, not just to Texans, but to the rest of the country. And, and that's because what happens in Texas doesn't stay in Texas. And if Ken Paxson were to remain in office, he could attack all of our beloved civil rights, the right to marry whom we love. He has said that he would challenge marriage equality and he can do that because he's got the courts on his side. He can pick whatever court he wants in Texas, take it to the Fifth Circuit, which is the most conservative circuit court in the country and take it up to the Supreme Court where he has all of the votes that he needs to do to, to change the law in a way that is harmful for all of us. So, I mean, look, you might be able to stop the busing alone. So. I, there's so many other issues and the attorney general position is so important. Uh, but on that alone, uh, uh, people uh, across the country probably would wanna help. Um, so let, let's talk about other things that are uh, very important in Texas, like the power grid. So the power grid was a disaster. They basically privatized it, uh, wound up killing people when it didn't work when they needed it. So what could the attorney general do about that? So. What happened with the power grid failure was just absolutely devastating for Texans. Not only did people experience financial ruin at the time, they experienced price gouging, and we are all paying for it at this moment. Um, the power companies 
put their losses onto Texas consumers. And so we're now currently seeing electric bills that are just exorbitant. I haven't been to a single city in Texas where I haven't heard someone say, my my energy costs are more than my car note. So uh, the attorney general should have done something at the time. My position is that we can use the power of the consumer protection unit and have accountability for these price gougers and make sure that Texans aren't taken advantage of. So, so you grew up in South Texas, uh, your parents weren't anywhere near rich and, and you've already accomplished a lot. Um, so the legal principle I was talking about earlier is the Garza notice. Uh, so what is the Garza notice named after you? So yeah, in, uh, in 2017, I was in private practice and uh, I before that I had started taking cases for teens that needed access to abortion care in Texas. They had to go through what's called a parental consent law. Um, you know, and I also handled a lot of immigration cases for for children fleeing violence from Central America. So I was very familiar with with several areas of law that this uh, coincided with. I represented a young teen, Jane Doe, who needed access to abortion care in the state of Texas and was denied that care by the Trump administration. Um, she was essentially held prisoner and against her will and not allowed to exercise her her choice. Ken Paxson tried to involve himself. Brett Kavanaugh was on the appellate court at the time and made a decision that would have forced my client to have a child against her will. Uh, and we beat back Trump, Kavanaugh and Paxton. And we won the right for her to make her decision. Uh, so, so Jane was able to exercise her rights, but we went even further. And the Garza notice is a result of my work on that case. Uh, every single teen in immigration detention today is given the notice that they have a right to access abortion care. But more than that, they are actually moved to a state where they can enact their abortion decision. So it holds even now, even in these dark times where abortion has been completely banned in the state of Texas. So you're incredibly accomplished at a young age. Uh, you uh, are in the best shape to win. Now I fear asking this question. Uh, this is exactly when the Democratic Party should come in and provide funding so you can get over the top. Have they? I mean, look, we have worked really hard. I I didn't tell you this, but I was pregnant through most of my, my primary. I gave birth after the, the March 1st primary and then won a runoff by over 25 points. I'm a fighter. I know what we need to do to fight for what we need in the state of Texas. I have a daughter now, I wanna make sure that she has more rights than I did. And I do not want her to grow up in a place where I am afraid to send her to school. So this fight is in me and I have worked very, very hard and, and have brought a lot of people to my side and we are doing everything that we can to make sure we are competitive. We are on TV, we're on digital, we're, uh, we're blasting Ken Paxson because we need to let people know how dangerous he is for Texas. So we are doing all of those things and I am grateful for the support that I've been able to bring in from our partner organizations across the state. There is a very real air of change in Texas. There are so many grassroots organizations that are coming up, that are fighting, that are that are you know putting up ads and posters and billboards for me and block walking and text banking and phone banking and doing all of the things that we need to get done so that we secure a win in November. 
and we're gonna do it. It's going to be a Latina from the border that is going to change Texas, that is going to flip this seat. So that is one very tough person running in a tough state and doing great. Uh, I know the answer, by the way, the Democratic Party has not helped much. So that's why I tell you, Rochelle Garza for Texas.com. The links will be below. Uh, Make sure uh, that you at least check it out. Give everybody an opportunity here. Rochelle, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, there's a controversy in North Carolina. Uh, one of the candidates is deeply corrupt. You're gonna find out about it. You know, you'll also be shocked to find out the mainstream media doesn't care because they're like corruption. That's kind of awesome. Uh, but we're gonna tell you the reality here. Uh, to help us uh, discuss this, Julia Rock joins us from The Lever. She's the one uh, that wrote the stories about this uh, candidate, Ted Budd. So, Julia, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, no problem. So, Richard Burr's retiring in North Carolina. Uh, and so this is an open seat. So tell us who's in the race and, and what the lay of the land is first. Yeah, so Ted Budd is the Republicans nominee for the seat and he has been in Congress as a representative since 2017. And the story of Ted Budd is really that he loves banks. He's running against Sherry Beasley, a former state Supreme Court justice. Um, and sort of the the national media coverage of the race has basically been that it's pretty boring because neither candidate has sort of had you know the major gaffe that we're seeing in other tight Senate races across the country. But you know, from our standpoint, this is not a boring election. Yeah, no, it's not at all. Uh, so I understand that Ted Budd has taken some campaign cash and in a shocking turn of events might have done something for his donors. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, he's done more than one thing for his donors in the banking industry, but you're right, he's being backed by Club for Growth, which is a pro Wall Street super PAC. He's the first congressional candidate to ever have ads from the American Bankers Association on TV for him. And one might suspect that the reason for this is that he's really gone to bat for major issues that the banks have, specifically with, you know, Dodd era regulations. So, first, he championed a bank merger, the biggest one. Uh, since the financial crisis between BBT and SunTrust um, to create Truist Bank. He also uh, picked a really unpopular battle, not only you know for Congress, but even within his own party, uh, going to bat for banks to allow them to charge higher fees to retailers when you swipe debit cards. Um, and he also had a pretty unusual campaign also on behalf of banks to help lenders, consumer lenders and fintech lenders bypass state interest rate laws by functionally choosing which bank they use to originate the loan. So I love when the different bribes get into a bribe war, even within the Republican Party. Like the retailers are bribing different Republicans and the banks are bribing Bud. Uh, and so then they fight over each other because the retailers don't want to pay the banking fees, and the banking fee guys say, "Oh yeah, we're gonna pay even more to the even more corrupt guys." So this is what our democracy has devolved to. Um, so, but in the case of Ted Bud, so what, let's talk about numbers. So, uh, what's the rough sense of about how much uh, these folks, Club for Growth, etc., are pouring into his campaign? 
I mean, what's funny is that Club for Growth actually spent a massive amount of money, not only you know in the general election now, but in the primary. Um, but they've spent almost ten million dollars on ads boosting his campaign, and you know Club for Growth has bundled uh, like nearly three hundred thousand in individual donations. I think it's two hundred fifty-eight thousand. Um, and Bud has also received you know nearly four hundred thousand from individuals in the in the lending and financial services industry. So these are huge sums of money. Senate Majority PAC is the biggest outside group uh, spending for him, and Club for Growth is next. Okay, and so what did the folks get in return? Well, what did Bud do to to protect these donors? Well, so on on the point you mentioned about you know the retailers versus the banks, it, it was sort of funny because Republicans basically had to choose which lobbying group to go with. Although the the status quo failed favored the retailers, um, but you know what he was fighting for on behalf of the banks was about ten billion in lost revenue that they said they had lost after Dodd Frank passed when there was a cap put on uh, these swipe fees. So so that was a huge amount of money for them. Um, you know, and, and and this other issue of, of banks originating loans on behalf of consumer and fintech lenders, it's a little bit hard to know, you know, exactly like what the size of the gain for banks would have been there because not all of this activity like is recorded. You know, financial regulators are still trying to figure out what's going on with it. But this is a huge business because if a consumer, you know, consumer loans in many states, including North Carolina, are capped at a 36% interest rate. And with this scheme where banks are originating the loans on behalf of the consumer lenders, you see interest rates on the scale of like 300 to 400%. So again, it's just a massive amount of money uh, you know, that, that his donors stand to gain for, for the policies he's pushing. And how does he push them? Well, the, you know, that's a great question because he, he, he um, came to Congress in the majority and the Republicans had this big bill to basically unwind the parts of Dodd-Frank that they hated the most. Um, and 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 he you know played a role in in really making sure banks got what they wanted from that. And then once he was in the minority, he he was pressuring regulators, um, you know, to 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 issue rules that that the bank industry groups were asking for, and also to approve this merger between um, two banks that again was the biggest merger in the wake of the financial crisis. So Julia, that's the part I never understood. Uh, I'm being honest in in. Because a lot of times I ask questions sarcastically, but this one's real in terms of, um, so, like people in Congress or the Senate will write letters to regulators, and I always think like, why are they even allowed to do that? What do they have? I mean, they're almost by definition meddling on behalf of their donors, right? Um, so, and what does it mean to write a letter? Why do the regulators get uh, pressured by that? Is it legal? Illegal? Help me understand that. It's a great question because I think these letters to regulators just sort of smell of corruption in a way. Even the other stuff doesn't because one, you know, as, as former lawmakers told me, as current lawmakers will say, they're basically written by industry groups. And in fact, you know, you don't even have to be told that to know it. They mirror very closely demands of like the Bank Policy Institute, the American Bankers Association. And in the case of Ted Budd, uh, like donations to him will skyrocket around the time when he he writes a letter asking for something that banks want. Yes, they're allowed to do it. It's legal. You know, we get them through public records requests. Sometimes lawmakers will sort of brag about them. You know, through press releases and on their website. But oftentimes the public doesn't even know about them. You know, unless they're requested. And yeah, at the end of the day, it's up to the regulators to issue rules. You know, and the banks are pressuring to do something. 
maybe a couple of good government groups are are pressuring them to do something else. But yeah, why 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 are you know lawmakers weighing in on these federal regulatory matters? It's usually it teams when their donors ask them to. Yeah, the corruption's so over the top that it's like the like other than great outlets like the lever and intercept and a couple other things. So we we do it at TYT too. Nobody even notes it. Like Mo Brooks gave this giant speech about, oh yeah, you buy chairmanships in the in Congress, right? And you and you buy in the industry that's affected. If you're going to the banking committee, the bankers give you the million dollars because, and then you have to do what they tell you, right? And in this case, Bud's like, oh, I wrote a letter on behalf of my donors to unduly influence these folks, and everybody's like, oh yeah, bravo, nicely done. What? Okay, so but now I always want to know from the regulator side too. Like I get it in the good old days slash the bad old days. You write a letter to a regulator and you're a powerful person in in Congress. That means, son, you better do this, otherwise you're gonna get fired. Okay, so that's the old days. So these days, if you're a regulator, why don't you go? Oh, duly noted here, circular filing cabinet, right? What's the implicit threat that I'm missing? I mean, it's a good question, and and of course, like has a lot to do with you know the the switching of power between parties and and who's in the executive branch. This should be particularly worrisome because uh, one, if Republicans take the Senate and 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 he's elected, he's going to be launched into an even more powerful position, probably on the Senate Financial Services Committee. And two, you know the 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 plan that Republicans have been. Um, you know, outlining in an ongoing way, as both parties do for when they uh, take office, is to be really aggressive about their use of congressional oversight of the executive branch. So this is something that really has, you know, a lot of teeth behind it and that we should be more concerned about if Republicans take Congress and have control of these committees and, 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 you know, their threats are even more meaningful. So you're writing about the substance of it, but out of curiosity, do you know how he's doing? How the, how the race is going. I mean, the polling has been very close. Um, you know, initially it was sort of seen as it, it would be a Republican seat, and then Beasley started pouring polling really well, and now Democrats are pouring a lot more money into the race. It it it, it it's sort of uh, I, I would never make a prediction about this type of thing, but it seems like a very close race. Got you. And then um, Beasley is she uh, pointing out uh, this reporting or this or this issue on the campaign trail at all? It, it, it really hasn't come up at all, you know. And one thing that's interesting is the the Club for Growth ads attacking her again. You know, this is basically a, a Wall Street super PAC, and they're mostly attacking her for some, um, you know, small and old cases she ruled on as a justice. I mean, the the debates in in this election have not at all been about financial issues. Even though, you know, on the on the predatory lending point, if Bud had gotten his way on all of these regulations, groups were warning it would cost people just in North Carolina half a billion dollars. It's it's huge sums of money that would have a have real impact on people not not just around the country, but in North Carolina. And and there there just hasn't been um really discussion about this either in the ads for the race or or in the debates between the candidates. Yeah, I mean look, the, you could make if I was running SM, I'd tell folks this guy ripped you off for half a billion dollars, and and so and he's getting his ads are run by the bankers, literally the American Banking Association and etc. But my guess is I don't know a thing about Beasley, but Beasley and the Democrats they never bring that stuff up because they have banker donors. So yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, it's, that's exactly the point. And you know, in some cases, it's it's Biden regulators now who are not turning back on the on the positions that Trump regulators adopted when under pressure from lawmakers from Bud. And you know, the Democrats are probably better on on these banking regulation issues. But you're right, it's a problem in both parties. All right, last thing, I'm sure that his excuse is, oh no, no, I'm doing this to create jobs in North Carolina. How's that worked out? Uh, there have been massive layoffs, thousands of layoffs actually just in North Carolina because of this this bank merger that he championed. Oops, okay, <laughs> there goes his only excuse. Uh, so uh, Julia Rock, really great reporting of the lever. Uh, thank you for joining us, appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. No problem.